I uh, am grateful for these deep dives you do. And I took some time to learn from some of the videos from the guest speakers that you've had on humility and gratitude um, and hope as well. And so I'm really grateful uh, for this opportunity to join your congregation. And as we take a little bit of a deeper dive, um, I would really like to invite you to be maybe jotting some notes down um, and thinking already now about some insights that occur to you along the way about um, anything that you see as particularly relevant um, for you, for you in your congregation, for you in your um, home life, for you as an individual. Um, are there some promising practices uh, that help you on the journey of hope? Um, what are some of the struggles on the way? And any comments or questions that you have along the way? Are you able to hear me okay? Awesome, great. So when we're talking about hope, we want to distinguish it from uh, say optimism, which is sort of a, this general attitude of um, seeing the positive. Um, hope is very future, focused and looks at a particular good future. And that might be attaining a positive, but it also might be good to be relieved of a negative. So recently in your sermon, you mentioned chronic pain, right? We may long for that day when there is no more suffering. There is no more pain. Um, there is no more death. Um, and hope, Sometimes it's talked about as a dispositional characteristic, as a virtue. Sometimes in the literature, it's talked about as an emotion or a passion. And tonight, what we're gonna be talking about are two things. So I wanna spend a good bit of time talking about our ultimate Christian hope. So Christian hope in an ultimate sense, we use the word eschatological hope. And this is hope in God's promised future in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see God as the giver, the means, and the final end of all we ever hoped for. We, of course, live in the here and now. We have everyday hopes for today. For tomorrow, we have life goals, we have all sorts of strivings. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that too. But before we get too far, um, I want to say some one more thing about hope. Hope, um, when we think about this within like a virtue perspective, hope is always navigating between despair on the one hand and presumption on the other. And I was so delighted, Kevin, when I was hearing your um, sermon this morning. Um, that uh, you talked about the despair and presumption and that hope um, navigates between those two things as it's aiming towards this particular good future. So if we think about these, this ultimate Christian hope, and then we think about the fact that we're also everyday people who need to plan our next meal, we have the calendar to keep, we have some goals we're striving for, then it'd be helpful to think about nesting our everyday hopes within the larger frame of eschatological hope. So kind of like these stacking cups we use um, with kids, perhaps it could be that to be virtuous, the telos or the aim or the goal 
that we have even of these everyday and proximal hopes, or even five years from now hopes, or even 10 years from now hopes, but in the relatively near future, that the kind of things we hope for ought to fit within ultimate Christian hopes. I'm gonna to try to unpack that a little bit more. That means that our aims, our motives certainly cannot be egoistic. They can't just be about ourselves. It really can't just be about our own glory or our own obtaining of things um, because they need to be other oriented um, for this to be virtuous. And there could be ways in which um, our everyday hope could have to do with yearning for good things in the here and now that resonate with deep things that are part of God's promised new creation. So, for example, we might have deep yearnings that involve the end of racism and violence. And we might every day work toward that goal and look for small signposts because those are signs of the good future in Christ breaking into the present, for example. There are times, though, where these cups don't really set all that well. Ideally, our everyday hopes are going to fit within this Christian ultimate hope vision, but sometimes they just don't fit. And that could be times where the goals we're hoping for really aren't hopes at all. They might actually be temptations. So the things we really want and we're really aiming for and the things we're really striving for don't fit within that ultimate new creation vision that we see throughout the whole of scripture. And I'm going to unpack that a little more particularly in a minute. It could be that those aren't hopes at all. They could just be temptations. All right. I'm going to take a moment to talk about everyday hopes because hope has occupied a fair bit of space um, in the psychology literature. And I know Ed actually mentioned some of these things in his sermon as well. And I was grateful um, that our preparation really aligned in that way. So one of the most popular theories is a very goal-focused theory, and this is Snyder's cognitive hope, I call it. And this is about having a goal and having the willpower to use our agency to pursue that goal, right? That goal could even be contributing meaningful things to the psychological literature, a goal that both of Worthington and I share, and a lot of the people that he's uh, helped bring into these conversations have shared. So we use our agency uh, to pursue our research. And sometimes we hit roadblocks and we have, need to take detours. We need pathways thinking. Sometimes Snyder called this way power. So we need not only agency, but we need to be flexible. When we hit a roadblock in terms of pursuing something, we need to be able to find another way to reach that goal. And this approach to hope has been shown to be linked with everything from academic and athletic achievement to using health information to learning from experience and how to approach rather than avoid challenges. It's associated with better outcomes after traumatic experiences. It is actually associated with greater sense of meaning and purpose. And one thing we've learned 
from this literature is that if you want to grow in everyday hope, you want to select clearly defined manageable goals where you can uh, define the strategies you're going to use to get there. And when you hit roadblocks, not if, but when we hit roadblocks, we can figure out other ways of navigating. Okay. Now that's not the only approach. We have work right from uh, Everett Worthington. And in addition to willpower and waypower, his hope-focused marriage counseling approach it also introduced the idea of what he called weight power. Weight power was the capacity to strengthen resolve, to patiently wait on God's work in the marriage. So Ev <laughs> brought to us the idea, yes, of course, we want to be motivated as we pursue positive changes through marital counseling. We're also going to use way power drawing on multiple tools in public counseling. But we also need to learn that patience part. And this isn't passive. This is resolve. This is sort of this active patience waiting on God's work in the marriage. And very recently, he's come out with this amazing new persevering hope scale. Now, there's one other approach to um, hope. There are more approaches than just one. But Scioli brought together an integrated a sense of mastery and attachment and survival and spirituality. I only mention this because I want you to know it's going to come up later. Um, and this is more than pursuing a particular goal, which can be rather individualistic. So this brings in the relational side and takes into account attachment and spirituality. And that was a real contribution and advancement. But there is still some hope gaps in the research literature. And one of them is the um, ultimate hope beyond this life. Talk about um, eschatological hope, and that's gonna be a focus soon in our comments today. But also construing hope as a virtue is a real need in the literature. And I'm happy to tell you that I have a wonderful colleague, Dr. Kendra Thomas, who's done profound work on uh, hope as a virtue and she simultaneously developed it in Brazil, South Africa, and the US. So it wasn't developed in the US and then translated to export hope, but was really actually rooted in deep study of hope exemplars in the South African context. And out of that uh, framing hope that grows out of adversity to pursue a positive future, encouraging others, for the common good. And I'm really excited um, about this just emerging in the literature. We also need more work on spirituality and religious connections and practices in faith communities such as yours, practices that sustain hope. I am thinking about your practice of linking your um, sermon planning to your deep dive work. Um, I'm thinking about your practices during Advent, um, scripture passages, the songs that you probably are singing. Um, I heard on the recording I had of Pastor Kevin um, that you're getting ready, I believe, um, to share uh, the Lord's Supper, communion. But our practices in worship, our practices at funerals are very, very profoundly tied to hope. And so I'm going to share just a little bit about some things we've learned about everyday hope and also eschatological hope. I know you recently did a deep dive 
into um, gratitude. And so that's going to come up in this next study. Now, one of the things that we found in um, the first study we did on hope was that hopelessness was strongly and positively tied or directly tied to depressed symptoms, anxious symptoms, physical symptoms, and alcohol use. But in addition, we found that hope was tied to gratitude and self-control, patience, forgivingness towards other people, and a sense of flourishing, which is both feeling good, but also functioning well, having connections with other people, having a sense of purpose, having a sense of meaning in life. These are all correlates of everyday hope. Um, and I want to unpack this even further. Because what we found is when we looked at all of those, self-control, patience, and forgivingness, once we, so we're, we did a little statistical maneuver where we put all these variables into a prediction model and we see it saw that self-control and patience and forgivingness reliably predicted gratitude. And then when we next put in, I'm sorry, reliably predicted hope. And when we next put in gratitude, Gratitude was so powerful, it went above and beyond self-control, patience, and forgivingness combined to predict cognitive hope, that goal-focused hope that Ed talked with you about earlier and that I just mentioned. And when it came to the integrative hope that also brought in human relationships and spirituality, gratitude went beyond self-control, patience, and forgivingness combined to explain another 39% of variation in hope scores beyond all those other virtues. So what we see is that gratitude is an incredible fuel for hope. So I wanted to tie your deep dive into gratitude to your deep dive into hope. If you are looking for practical ways to build hope, I would say use some of those tools that I was just listening to Bob Emmons talk earlier today um, on your gratitude series. Draw on those gratitude tools and you will also find that hope increases. That's my prediction. Okay, so gratitude was this top virtue in predicting cognitive goal-focused hope as well as integrative hope and in an inverse way, it also accounted for hopelessness. So the more gratitude, the less hopelessness. Now, we wonder, is there anything that people can do to increase their present hope? We asked people to identify a current particular hope that was meaningful to them and something that they could contribute to, but not something they could control or guarantee the outcome of. And then we asked them, a time in the past, a time when you similarly had a particular meaningful hope that really did come about. So just like now we have this hope that's meaningful, it's particular, and we can't control the outcome. There was a time in the past where we were in that very same situation. Think about a time in the past where it really did come to fruition. We ask people to write about what they learned, their motivations, steps they took to pursue the outcome, ways their relationships played a role, how they grew spiritually, how they grew in strengths and virtues, and to name specifically what they were grateful for 
and to whom they were grateful. Other people, God. In that process, what we found was that, and here the solid line, doing that grateful remembering of a past hope fulfilled, elevated hope, elevated happiness, whereas being in the control condition, people actually dropped in their hope and dropped in their happiness. So we learned that writing about a time in the past where a hope was fulfilled and writing about it gratefully, elevated hope and also elevated happiness. Now that's kind of everyday hope. Let's talk about some practices that support it. I would suggest that clarity about what we hope for, being really clear what's the aim, what's the goal, what's the telos, that is very important. It helps us then pray, plan, make progress toward that goal, and also be very open to change. Always have that humility and flexibility. Practices that support hope include harnessing our agency, our willpower, or capacities to do things, to exert motivated action without being controlling. Because we recognize that our virtuous efforts ultimately rely on God's action. And when we uh, exert our agency, we are aligning our agency with God's agency. If what we're doing is pursuing hope, if they don't align with new creation vision, if they don't align with what we understand to be God's work, then they're temptations probably. It's also helpful to engage in pathways thinking, thinking together as perhaps your congregation might be pursuing a goal of some kind. What are additional or alternate ways we might also be able to reach the goal? Because sometimes we hit we hit a crossroads and we need to think of a detour, another way to adjust the timeline, modify our approach, um, pray about it differently, discuss and learn differently together. Um, I have no idea what you're working on as a congregation, but this is just a human process that I'm reflecting on. But of course, also a, a faith process. Collaboration, seeking social support, welcoming accountability. We can always learn from other people's insights and those can elevate our sense of motivation, our own willpower and our own pathways thinking. And there are times where we just can't muster that. We are so worn out, exhausted, depleted. Maybe it's chronic pain. Maybe it's a condition that won't in the here and now in this life get better. And it's just really draining and really hard. For people that I know who have been utterly spent and unable to hope themselves, it has been very powerful for them to be held in hope by others. We hope together, even when as individuals, we are too exhausted to even hope. The crucible of suffering can make hope feel out of reach, but we can still possibly be held and even have outstretched hands and a receptive posture as other people hold hope on our behalf and may be supportive in prayer and practical ways. 
grateful remembering of a past hope fulfilled, past provisions, those that's evidence. That's evidence that it's possible. And gratitude grows in that space of abundance. And gratitude is a deep well that hydrates hope. And I want to share with you a gratitude hope related prayer um, that I learned from the story of somebody who dealt with very profound and chronic depression that was not responsive to the treatments of the day. And this was decades and decades ago. Um, but this was an approach that anticipated that God might not alleviate this particular suffering, but anticipated that God could use it. And Howard E. Butt Jr. prayed this prayer. Thank you, God, for the good that you will bring out of this, in his case, depression. Not thank you for the depression, not thank you for making sure the treatments work because they haven't for year after year, but instead I'm starting to say thank you in a hopeful way. I'm reaching into the future, trusting that you can use this for good. I may not end up seeing it directly, but I trust that you are God and there are things you can do as you bring about the promised future you've revealed to us in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and as um, we can find in scripture. Now, hope I mentioned is a hydrating well and I love um, this indigenous artwork um, called Wells of Hope. Let's think about hope. Um, and link it to temporal hopes. There's a beautiful text that Thomas Kruger wrote, and it's set um, to a hymn and choral music as well. And this is a profound invitation. This is a, a powerful Advent hope invitation. The text goes, view the present through the promise that Christ will come again. Trust, despite the deepening darkness, Christ will come again. Lift the world above its grieving through your watching and believing in the hope past hopes conceiving. Christ will come again. Probe the present through the promise. Christ will come again. Let your daily actions witness. Christ will come again. Let your loving and your giving and your justice and forgiving be a sign to all the living, Christ will come again. Match the present to the promise, Christ will come again. Make this hope your guiding premise, Christ will come again. Pattern all your calculating and the world you are creating to the advent you are waiting, Christ will come again. There's one more piece that came from a lessons and carol service that I have two daughters singing in on Sunday evening. And this is a Portuguese text that I will read in English. There is a love this piece. You'll have to hear the music sometime because just reading the words is not really. A little beyond this time, the future announces with gladness. No war, no disaster, no crime, no more desolation. No sadness. Lord, may your kingdom come. 
the joy of our world recreate and all our hope and our longings transform in the fullness. Later in the piece, the words are the seeds of your kingdom we bear. Your future is drawing so near. The earth with your help we prepare until you in fullness appear. Lord, may your kingdom come, the joy of our world recreate. There are so many very powerful texts. If you have not heard um, Elaine Agner's um, piece, oh, I shouldn't have mentioned that because now I'm not going to think of the words, but it's a new creation choral piece, and it is utterly gorgeous, and it'll come to me in a minute. Okay. So many scriptural texts. Uh, Isaiah 65 is such a powerful, powerful uh, new creation, uh, new heavens and new earth that I wanted to mention. Uh, I'll mention a lot of scripture passages. Psalm 85, your kingdom come. The painting by John August Swanson is so powerful, anticipating the new creation, um, you know, tools of warfare become tools of cultivation, um, the space where justice and mercy uh, meet, justice and peace embrace. I'm going to share a little bit more about a research article with a bunch of theory, all rooted in scripture. Spera and Deo is um, the phrase associated with Hope College, and so that is hope in God. And so this reminds me every day um, that our ultimate hope is um, God is the source of our ultimate hope and the means of our hope and the final end of all our hoping and our other hopes, our littler hopes that fit within this new creation hope. So to summarize, uh, new creation hope is this anticipation of a good and particular uh, vision of the future. And this is, of course, shaped by the whole of scripture um, that God will make all things new God's going to be raising people to everlasting life with him in joyful celebration, including people from all places and cultures, tribes and tongues, languages, ending pain, suffering, death, eliminating societal evil and harms, bringing reconciliation and healing to all of creation. And that description really comes from a lot of different scripture passages. And so rather than recite them all, I'd be happy to share slides or the article via Ev and Kevin. Um, but we spent a lot of time working on, I suppose I should have this in presentation mode. Sorry. Are you able to still see it? Or not? I'm not sure. Can you see it? Or not? Yes, okay. we can. Okay. I feel a little safer using my ugly view here. Um, <laughs> scriptural themes uh, that God is the primary agent of ultimate eschatological end. God is the one who's setting all things right in a new creation. As Christ was resurrected, so too the dead will be resurrected and raised to new everlasting life with everlasting joy that will include celebration and feasting. People from every place, culture, language will be included. Pain, crying, suffering, death will come to an end. 
the promise isn't just for us as individual persons, but it extends to the elimination of all evil, all war, all violence, all injustice. So it's not just addressing our personal pains, which is good and wonderful, but it's also relational pain and wrong and it's societal travail. So God is the one who's reconciling all things such that righteousness and peace will flourish and healing will come to the nations and the entire cosmos, which God so loves. So that's the frame that I'm working with. And I thought I should transparently share that with you. So what might it be like to um, live with eschatological hope? So you can reflect on your own journey. Um, as we were working with um, a large and multifaceted interdisciplinary team with psychologists, theologians, philosophers, there were some themes. So anticipating that God's promises in Christ are going to be fulfilled through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, living with ultimate eschatological hope also often means living with trust and a certain degree of steadfastness, even in hardship. When the um, waves are tossing us about, there's a sense of anchoring in God's promised ultimate future. And that doesn't mean um, that we don't ever lose our patience, but that we have greater patience in hardship because of that bigger and longer term perspective. But I will also acknowledge the importance of something that we dubbed the hope gap. So Ev introduced the idea in the forgiveness field of the injustice gap. And here I'm introducing the idea of the hope gap. The hope gap refers to this chasm we can experience between our present, the salience of suffering, injustice, division, compared to the healing, the justice, and the reconciliation of the new creation. Sometimes when we know what it's supposed to be like, it's so painful because we're so not there. This is not our experience. We can often be very distraught. We yearn for the fulfillment of God's promises and we need both lament and hope. I know that lament and hope also came up for you so far in the Hope Deep Dive. And with Kelly coming, you know it's coming up again. Lament and hope are not in opposition to each other, but that vital word and is so critical. And I think when we think about our worship practices and our practices as faith communities, we need to have sufficient space for lament and to even sit with that without having people right side us and tell us, yeah, but, and then point to some positive shimmery thing on the other side of the cloud. We need the capacity to sit with the Psalms of lament. I mean, Jesus certainly spoke them. So Kevin, you mentioned the words of Jesus from the cross, right? Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, Jesus is quoting these scriptures. Surely, surely we can follow in Jesus' footsteps and draw on this powerful Hebrew Bible prayer book, which um, gives us language sometimes um, that we don't have to be infinitely creative on our own. We can draw on the profundity of these gifts to us. And there are often these pivots after long laments 
there will be a pivot. Yet will I praise you. I'm thinking about particular songs right now. That hope needs to be there too, because if all we have is lament and we never have the hope, then we're in the despair. If all we have is the happy, clappy hope, and we do not have this capacity for lament, we can kind of veer into naive optimism that can become sort of presumptuous and can buy into, I think uh, Wes Hill was talking about the myth of progress. Um, we need both really to tell the truth, right? We need the gospel message with blues music. That's one example, right? Another thing about experiencing eschatological hope, uh, you pay attention to the language that people use and that you yourself use. Do you ever say, oh, the foretaste of heaven? Have you ever found yourself being like, oh, and catching a glimpse of something and it's just, oh, good. It's just like, oh, this is like leading me into this awareness of how good it could be, right? Those are the, those moments, these signposts um, of God's kingdom already, even though it's clearly not yet, right? Still live in that hope gap. But we see these signposts. We sometimes have these foretastes of the already signs of the kingdom that can be encouragements because the not yet part can feel so far away from Okay, just a little reminder, ultimate hope or eschatological hope aims towards God's promised future, guides our present goals and priorities, relies on God's provision, and it can help us align our efforts, our agency and our pathways and our weight power approaches, align that with God's agency, God's vision, a new creation vision, and ultimately union with God. Ed shared the scale, so I'm not going to. But basically, this is it in brief. Um, and it basically captures um, a lot of those summaries of a lot of scriptural themes that I just mentioned a bit ago. But I'd like if it, if we have a chance, could I share a few findings that we have about eschatological hope? Okay, cool. Great. So we found it is not only theoretically distinct, but it's also empirically or scientifically from a measurement perspective distinct from other measures of hope and from optimism. So even though it directly or positively relates to or correlates with goal-focused hope, that agency pathways and optimism, it is not redundant at all. It is different. As you might not be surprised, it is negatively related or inversely related to hopelessness and pessimism, right? Higher eschatological, lower hopelessness and pessimism but it's not a perfectly uh, inverse relationship. We also found this eschatological hope is strongly and positively related to gratitude, the tendency to be a grateful person, to be a forgiving person, and to show patience in hardship. We also found eschatological hope and religiosity were deeply tied with everything from positive relationships to spiritual or religious commitment is the measure that Ev was very important in uh, contributing to the field, religious participation, intrinsic, rather than like really doing uh, religious things and being religious in the way we live because we intrinsically are, we're not performing this for extrinsic reasons, positive attitude toward God, 
positive religious coping when hardship and trials and traumas come, and spiritual fortitude in times of challenge, um, that kind of resilience. Negatively correlated, unsurprisingly, then with having negative attitudes towards God and negative ways of coping religiously, which have to do with um, interpreting bad things that come my way as um, the devil's um, work or God is punishing me or my faith community is punishing me. Now, sometimes we have those hard, painful feelings and we can still have eschatological hope because, again, it's not a perfectly opposite relationship. Um, but they are negatively related. All right. Positive relationships with experience, the perceived presence of having meaning in life here and now, and that the ultimate meaning of life is secure. Maybe not, you know, people aren't completely lacking in doubts, but they have a sense like there is an ultimate purpose to life. There is an ultimate meaning to my life. That is powerfully connected to living with eschatological hope. And people flourish better. They feel better. They function better with relationships, with meaning, with purpose. The other thing, there's a fancy word on the screen here, but let me just tell you, whenever you're trying to figure out if what measure you've developed, like a scale, like the eschatological hope scale, you want to know, does it outperform other things that we already have in the literature? when trying to predict something like the perceived presence of meaning in life or ultimate meaning or flourishing? Does it do anything beyond say, religious commitment or religious participation or religious coping all combined? It does. Yes, religious commitment, participation and positive religious coping are great for meaning and flourishing, but eschatological hope goes above and beyond them combined to account for having a sense of meaning in my life here and now and the ultimate meaning of life and a sense of flourishing. Furthermore, they go beyond all the other hope and optimism related variables combined. So eschatological hope accounts for more than anything we can measure about everyday hope and optimism. It accounts for more of um, the meaning, ultimate meaning and flourishing than all of those other hope and optimism things combined. And eschatological hope goes beyond mental health symptoms of depression, of anxiety, also to account for meaning and flourishing. So it seems to be doing something that could be useful in the literature and ties into what people testify to in their lives. So, steadfastness, yearning, sometimes, experiencing that hope gap and being able to lament, this can all go with eschatological hope. We are also expectant in watching for signposts and savoring foretaste of God's kingdom. And this ties into a sense of vocation, right? A calling for how to live life that summons a missional calling of justice, of peacemaking. I know you had David Bailey um, as one of your deep dive people. And I think that's fantastic. I've been on peace building travel seminar experiences and a number of profound um, sessions led by David and experienced together with David. So as Christians, peacemaking is like not optional. We need to do it. We need to address 
other real needs in this world. We cannot turn a blind eye. We can't do eschatological hope as escapism from this world. We do it as deep summon to pursue God's vision and have that shape how we use our agency in the world to feed the hungry, to welcome the stranger, to actively, not passively, but actively address racism and root it out and address societal inequities and harm, to care for the ill, to steward creation, to earth keep, right? All of this aims in this direction of what will one day be when all are fed and welcomed, included, healed, and restored and reconciled new creation. That's nesting our proximal hopes and pursuits within that larger frame of eschatological hope. That's how we know those are hopes. I'm so glad you're going to have Kelly Cathick, and I would commend to you uh, his book on embodied hope, and I'd also commend to you Todd Billings' book on the end of the Christian life. Um, Kelly has a nice two-by-two, hope with no lament, hope with lament, no hope, no lament, lament with no hope, and if we look at hope with no lament, we get naive optimism. If we get lament with no hope, we get unrelenting despair. If we have no hope and no lament, we have detached stoicism. But when we're able to both hope and lament, that's the space of faithful suffering. That's the honest space of addressing the real wrongs in this world that will ultimately be righted and reconciled. Um, I'm looking at the time and I want to make sure we have a chance to talk. So what if I share with you this Wells of Hope image and then maybe we could transition into a time of Q&A. I'd love to hear anything um, that you have on your mind. <laughs> 